We're doing a sermon series through the book of Romans. We basically have just gotten this going. And uh, I want to pick up where I left off last Sunday. I want to begin by asking the question, do you view your faith as a treasure? Do you view your faith as a treasure? Let me change metaphors for a little bit. If by chance if by chance you were homeless and starving you had a lot of friends that you had met that were living under the same circumstances and you found a shelter that had ample food ample Places for everybody to sleep and everything. Would you share that news with your friends who are in need? Of course we would. So if we view our faith as a treasure, the way, the truth, the life, the only way that people can get to the Father, according to what Jesus said, Why wouldn't we want to be sharing that news with those who are outside of a saving relationship with God? I mean, I think that's far more important than political correctness. That's why John Stott would remind his readers that the gospel, the word gospel itself, means good news. And because of that, good news is for sharing. We are under an obligation to make it known to others. As Christians, we've been commissioned. Jesus, His last words to the disciples that were gathered there on the mount as He was getting ready to ascend, gave that great commission that said, uh, as you're going back into all the world, I want you to, here was the command, make disciples. Do that by teaching them all that I've taught you, by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But the emphasis, the command was make disciples, make other followers. Now, I'm pretty sure I haven't said this yet, but I actually don't think that Paul saw his trip to Rome as primarily a missionary trip. He was writing to Christians at Rome who pretty much had it all together. In chapter 15, verse 14, he's going to say, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. These, there were things that they needed, however, and so he would go on to address them and say, on some points I've written to you rather boldly by way of reminder. They weren't perfect. But he was, however, coming to them to minister. To impart some form of a spiritual gift, he said. And then very quickly corrected himself by saying, and I want to receive from you as well. I don't want to just come and let you think that I am the one who knows it all. I want to come and I want to share and we can be mutually encouraged with each other. You see, 
Paul was coming to minister. He was coming to impart some form of spiritual gift, and, and it's really pretty imprecise as to what that gift was. But he wanted to share with them. But he believed that sharing, witnessing, proclaiming, preaching, whichever word you want to use, that went together with praying. I've shared this several times, but how often do we hear somebody when everything else has not worked, they say, well, I guess we need to pray. No, prayer's not a last resort. It's where we need to start. We need to begin by saying, you know, like one of my favorite prayers, not the prayer of Jabez, they got so much credit, but one of my favorite prayers is the prayer of Jehoshaphat, who says, Lord, the enemy's big. We're powerless. We don't know what to do. But we're coming to hear and follow your directive. We need to be praying. And Paul reminded them in verses 9 and 10 that he was, the 8, 9, and 10, that he was praying for them constantly uh, and at all times. In fact, as he began verse 8, I want to read that. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ for all of you. And then he goes on, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I will, uh, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Did you notice how he begins with an oath? God is my witness. He wanted them to understand the seriousness of what he was about to say. According to the tradition, I mean, he's coming to Rome, the center of power, the center of culture. And according to tradition, Paul was an ugly little guy with beetle brows, bandy legs, a bald plate, a hooked nose, bad eyesight, and no great rhetorical gifts. We have all that from first century writings, early church fathers. So, what could he hope to accomplish against the proud might of imperial Rome? But yet he felt an obligation to bring that good news to all people. Greeks and barbarians, wise and foolish. By the way, we would have fallen under the barbarian category because that word meant anybody who didn't know the cultured Greek language and so their talking sounded like ba 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 ba. That's what the Greek word sounds like. Ba ba barbarians. But the point was, all people, no matter who they were, he felt that obligation. In fact, verse 15, he would go on to say, first of all, I am under an obligation. But then he would go on to say, I'm eager to preach the gospel. And that, what he said in verse 14, applies also to all of those who are not the, the first group or Christians. To, that, that eagerness to those who would in fact make fun of him, who would put him down. 
And he didn't know whether it would be his circumstances or God's providence that might allow him to get to Rome. But in his heart and mind, he was ready and eager to get there, to be with them, to preach and teach, and to pray with them. I think that shows that Paul is constrained, not just by a barren sense of obligation. He wasn't just going through the motions. You know, we often, and I say we, and that's kind of hoping that you've shared what I've shared, we often get burdened down with feelings of, I must, I should, I ought to. And Paul was saying he was obligated, but he was balancing that obligation with an eagerness, willing to meet that obligation. His heart was entwined with the will of God. Now this morning we pick up with the third of Paul's statements. He says, I'm not ashamed. Some commentators are so offended by the idea that Paul would think in terms of being ashamed of the gospel that they actually try to make that into, here's grammar lesson time, uh, uh, what's called a litotes. Okay? Young people, when you go to school, say, you know, your teacher, I want to use a litotes if you don't mind. It's where you simply use a phrase that is by means of the negative stressing the opposite. And a lot of people thought that's what Paul was doing. That he was using a phrase, something like the idea of, uh, you know, I, uh, trying to think of a good one, uh, I'm not amused. What do, we, what do we mean when we say, I'm not amused? Well, we really mean that it's not just that I'm not amused, it's that we are actually upset and angry. That's called a litotes, when you use the opposite to stress what you're saying. And a lot of people thought that's what Paul was doing. He's just using a litotes. Now, I don't think so. I think that that misses the point. It fails to consider that the phrase has to be understood in its context as well as in its setting. And that leads me to the the image that I want you to lock in this morning. Please listen to me closely. One part of my upbringing, an overwhelming temptation of mine, is to fall in line with those that want a label to judge, to discriminate, to stereotype. I have to fight that on a daily basis. I was raised in a very legalistic home. You know, our pointy fingers our crude antisocial whispers, they don't do anything but harm. Our critical and judgmental comments that cause others to feel shame, they destroy the fellowship and community that are supposed to characterize the church. You know the carpenters? 
Richard and Karen. This is one of my favorite groups. I actually grieved when I heard the news that Karen Carpenter had died at a young age. Beautiful voice. For those of you that don't know, she died of complications from anorexia nervosa. That's an illness where you feel like you are never where you need to be in terms of your body image. And so you do all kinds of things like uh, taking too many laxatives or causing yourself to, to vomit just so that you won't intake that food. And, and even though those people sometimes are, are bone thin, they still see themselves as, as overweight. And that's where Karen Carpenter was. And when they started examining her life, you know how it began? A reporter was talking to Richard and Karen came walking up behind the reporter's back. He did not know she was there. And the reporter said to Richard, where's that chubby little sister of yours? And they can trace the beginnings of her anorexia nervosa back to that moment. One of those crude, little, judgmental, thinking it was a joke, flippant kind of statement that hurt, labeled, judged, embarrassed. When those feelings come from outside the body, though, from those who want to embarrass you as a believer. Paul says we're not to be ashamed. Paul wrote his letters in the shadow of Rome. And his words stood in stark contrast to Roman rule and its honor-shame culture. Where honor of the family, honor of the tribe, your village, your city, the honor of the nation you represent, honor was key. And they would do anything to uphold the honor of someone they cared about and loved. Far more important than personal wealth. Honor. And without any doubt, Paul knew the temptation to preserve honor. That is, honor as the world defined it. Remember how he told the Corinthians that he came to them in weakness and fear? with much trembling. He knew that the message of the cross was considered foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews because it undermines self-righteousness. It undermines and challenges our self-indulgence. So whenever the gospel is faithfully preached and proclaimed, it does arouse opposition, even contempt, and sometimes even ridicule. So, as we do a little digging into the text this morning, here's my question that I want you to consider. How can we overcome the temptation to be ashamed of the gospel? So let's read the text. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. May God add His blessing to our reading of His Word. There are many, if not most, Bible teachers, including myself, for quite a while, for many years, who have taught that verses 16 and 17 were in fact the theme of the letter of Romans. For example, one guy, James Dunn, said it's clearly the thematic statement for the entire letter. Another theologian, a British theologian, who, by the way, in 2015 died just months or weeks ahead of his 100th birthday, a guy by the name of Charles Cranfield, he said that the statement of the theological theme which is going to be worked out in the main body of the epistle is right here in these two verses. But I've shared with you already, I think these two verses need to be combined with verses 2 to 4 of chapter 1, as well as verses 21 to 26 of chapter 3 that we're going to come to later to get a complete understanding of what Paul is trying to say. It's essential to understand that good news, the good news that Paul's not ashamed of, is a story. It's a story that was promised through the prophets, he says back in verses 2 to 4. It's found in the Old Testament. And it points to the faithfulness of God in terms of the fulfillment of all that had been seen, all that had been promised as it is demonstrated in the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've all sinned. But God, in faithfulness to His Word, has provided redemption in King Jesus. And that's why Paul would refer to it as the gospel of God. The good news that God has for us. So how did Paul and how shall we overcome the temptation to be ashamed of the gospel? Because... Now think about it. I'm on a plane. I'm sitting down. And the person sitting next to me says, well, what do you do for a living? Put yourself in my shoes. How many of you want to turn and say, oh, I'm a preacher with the way that image is done? Now, my daughter will tell you, as we were coming back from Mexico on one of our trips as she was with us, she and my wife were sitting right ahead and I was sitting behind with this gentleman. And very quickly, they heard the conversations going on and on about the gospel. He was a businessman. In fact, I actually got him to sit next to Jesus. His name was Asus. Uh, but we still converse. We still communicate. And that's been years ago. Uh, and, you know, the tendency, though, is to say, uh, well, uh, I'm a teacher. Somebody says, uh, in a sarcastic tone, you really believe that religion stuff? Do we want to take a bold stand? Or does a little bit of that shame start to creep its way in? I think in these two verses, there are two things that we can see and stand on that can help us out. And the first is, is that Paul says there in the first verse that the gospel is the power 
of God for salvation. Now, how do we know this? Well, in the long run, quite honestly, it's only because we have experienced that saving power in our own lives. If God has reconciled us to Himself in Christ, if He has forgiven our sins, if He has made us His children, if He has put His Spirit within us, then we need to understand that And by the way, His Spirit is in you if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if He's begun to transform us, and again, by the way, if you're not being transformed into the image of God, if you're not a better person than you were a week ago, a month ago, if you're not growing, if your plant's not growing, what's it doing? Dying. If we're not growing every day, we're dying. There is no status quo plateau. And that's why he says if we've been introduced into this new community, if all of those positive things have happened, and we should be able to say, yes, they have, yes, they have, then how can we possibly be ashamed? Moreover, we don't have to be ashamed because the gospel is God's saving power, he says, for everyone who believes. It doesn't matter if it's Jew or Gentile, rich or poor. You stand right next to everybody else and you receive salvation the same way everybody else does. It's the great leveler. Everyone who is saved is saved in the same way. By grace, through faithfulness. And that goes for everybody. All. No distinction. No distinction between us and the Latinos. No distinction between us and the blacks. No distinction between us and those who are financially destitute. We are all standing on level ground in that regard. And when we understand that power, then we understand that even though Paul does say, and you probably heard it as I was reading it, first to the Jews, yes, historically it did go to the Jewish nation first through Abraham. But that came with a responsibility. It didn't just come with blessing. They were told, Abraham was told, you are going to be pulled out as a special people, but you are to be a light to the rest of the world, to all nations. All blessings come with responsibility. You have a talent, you get a responsibility for that. I'm going to be working with one of the young men of the family putting together some pictures that will be up on the wall. His talent of knowing to be able to put that together brought with it what? Responsibility. We're going to look and we're going to say, okay, you got a gift here. Use it to help us. And sometimes we fail to realize that. You have a gift. God wants you to use it to help others. No matter what that gift is. 
We have somebody who relieved Kay of, of a burden. Writing those notes that you get in the mail for birthdays, anniversaries, Thanksgiving. She said, I have the time. I can do that. She took that job on, the responsibility of it, to share in that way of ministry. So, I shared with you last week from my friend Jack Cottrell, who also passed away uh, last week. He points out that shame is the consequence of being shown to have acted on a false assumption or a misplaced confidence. And so he says that Paul is saying he doesn't have to be ashamed because he knows. He doesn't have anything to worry about. He knows that he has devoted his life to a good cause, not a false cause. And so, all he said to Timothy is, I'm already being poured out on an altar. And shortly thereafter, days, maybe weeks after he wrote 2 Timothy, he was taken outside of town and beheaded for his belief. The gospel is power. And we should be able to know from our own personal experiences how that power has helped us through when we didn't know how we were going to do it. 2007 October of 2007 I got a phone call my dad and mom had been involved in a very serious automobile accident and the guy that I talked to I knew and I said I, I've already heard about the accident even though hundreds of miles away he said yeah I said, I heard my mom was taking to the hospital, but I called the hospital and they don't have any knowledge of that. He said, well, she wouldn't even be there. That's why I'm surprised you already know that as far away as you are. And I said, the, the lady told my daughter-in-law that she didn't know how my dad was doing. And Billy said, Chauncey, your dad didn't make it. I paused for a second and I said, yes, he did. He was leaving a funeral service to go to Wednesday night Bible study when the accident happened. But here's my point. I knew, I don't know why, but six months earlier my dad had sat down with me and said, I want you to have my funeral service and your mom's funeral service. Can you do that? I said, I don't know, but if you want me to, I'll do it. From the time I got that news until the funeral, I shut down emotionally. I went into mental gear. Putting notes together, putting thoughts together, putting a message together. And I delivered that message we went to the graveyard and I delivered the graveside message. But then, after the closing prayer, I started to walk away. And my oldest son, Chauncey, also, saw me walking away and followed along. And had he been, not been there, I'd have been on the ground because I collapsed. 
Chauncey could not do it. This Chauncey. It was only the power that God was working in me and through me that allowed me to do that task that I had agreed that I would do. It is the power that all of us can have regardless of whether it has to do with shame and honor or strength to fulfill something that needs to be taken care of. Secondly, in verse 17, he says the gospel is the righteousness of God and it's revealed from faith for faith. Now, if you consider how Paul's statement in verses 16 to 17 are put together, there, there is a logic in it. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because, or for, it's the power of God for salvation, for, or because, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Paul's actually giving us the reason the gospel is God's saving power. It says because in, it is in the gospel, the good news, that God's righteousness is revealed. And moreover, this righteousness is from faith for faith. Paul uses two different prepositions. Uh, so those translations that you translated the same way are incorrect. Two different prepositions. The faith is from faith for faith. Which Paul says is actually in fulfillment of Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. The righteous shall live by faith. Now since many commentators have called these two verses the text of which the rest of Romans is the exposition, and these verses certainly are crucial to our understanding of the meaning of Romans, then I think we need to understand a few things. What does it mean when it says the righteousness of God? And we should have some understanding of the meaning of what's it mean from faith for faith. And I would certainly think we'd want to know how we should interpret all of that in terms of the Habakkuk Old Testament passage. So having said in verse 16 that the gospel is God's power unto salvation, in verse 17 he answers the question as to why. Why this is so. And for the third time uses that little particle for. Because the gospel is God's power unto salvation for or because in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed. That is the source of the gospel's saving power. The righteousness of God. And this is the heart of the gospel. The good news. This is why we don't have to be ashamed. This is why we don't have to feel powerless. It's not because it's not based on us. It's based on the righteousness of God. But please, please hear me out. It is not some form of legal fiction claiming that God fictitiously pronounces us righteous even though we are unrighteous. And I've been guilty of that. Teaching that very thing. Trying to help people understand justification. I've said, well, think of it like this. It's just as if I'd. No, it's not just as if I'd never sinned. 
That's putting together a false story because I have sinned and I am a sinner. And I will continue to be a sinner until the day that I die. Now, we've got to understand that the biblical God that we worship is a God of fact. Not fiction. He's a God of good news, not false news. He's a God of transformative power, not pretense. And so the righteousness of God that's been revealed is God's promises that He kept. His faithfulness to those promises that He kept all the way through. And regardless of what humanity did, I mean, man, you, you read through the Old Testament. Israel's going away. It's coming back. It's going away. It's coming back. At one part, he takes Hosea, a prophet, and says, Hosea, I want you to go marry this woman that's not going to be faithful to you just so that you can understand what I'm going through. And you can proclaim to the people what it's like to be married to somebody that's not faithful. And you keep taking her back and forgiving her, and she does it again. And Hosea did that. Read the little book. We don't remain faithful even though God does remain faithful. And that's what Paul wanted us to know. That's where the power comes from. Because even though we don't live up to what we need to be doing, God continues to fulfill His obligations. My friend Mark Halen in a commentary that he wrote on Habakkuk, in terms of understanding that situation, he points out how chapter 2 of Habakkuk is talking about a person who is puffed up with their belief that they can do it. And he says, no, you can't be like that person who's puffed up and aware of their own talents and their own abilities. You've got to be like the person who continually thinks he is unworthy. He is incapable. And then feel that blessing. It's for those who are moving from that situation of self-indulgence, self-grandizement, that you move to what true faith is. From the faithfulness of God that never fails for our faithfulness in which we will fail. But God will forgive. Let me recommend to you highly, if you haven't read it, the book titled simply Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer knew he was about to be executed. He knew that his preaching and teaching in Germany was going to result in his imprisonment and death, and it did. In fact, Germany already knew that they were defeated when Hitler made the order that went down for Dietrich Bonhoeffer and a couple others to be executed. Bonhoeffer in his book Discipleship says, only true believers obey and only the obedient are true believers. Think about that. We can't excuse something and say, well, I'm just human. No. We've got to be striving to be better, to be more obedient. Parents, kids, both sides. 
How many times can that child come and say, I messed up again. I did it again. I'm sorry. And so you just want to say, don't tell me you're sorry. Just don't do it. So in closing, here's my challenge. Is it really too hard to understand that the Gospel does not simply just deliver information about God that we need to know? That the good news of the Gospel is we don't have to stay the same. We can change. This afternoon, somewhere in the schedule, I'll be putting my other shoes on. A year ago, August, almost two years ago, it was three years ago now, it's September evening. Two years ago, I couldn't let in this day. It was like, here. You remember that? I saw some pictures of my old self. 350 pounds of me. Now, I can overlap. How did that happen? If you had told me two years ago, August, that I would walk over 1,500 miles in that amount of time, I'd have said you're crazy. But I have. If you'd have said, all you can do, Chauncey, you'll lose 100 pounds, I'd have said, I don't believe it, but I'm going to stay steadfast. And I'm going to take little steps in the shed. And that's what Paul is trying to say to us. The Gospel, this book, is not just about information to pack in your head. It's about information that can help you be different. If you're sad, if you're depressed, open up the Psalms and read what David wrote when he was sad and depressed and what he did about it. If you're angry, open up the Psalms and find out what David wrote when he was angry. Angry at God. And God didn't zap him with lightning because he was angry. He helped him. Helped him change. And the Gospel is something that for those who are willing to respond in faith and faithfulness, He can help us change. Let's pray.